Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik. This is episode 125 with Alika Magas. We talk about Poltergeist, their new play that's happening this weekend at CU Boulder in the acting studio. It's sold out, but as we'll talk about in the, in the podcast itself, there are ways, especially if you're very nice to house managers and people don't show up, that you might still be able to get in. So please enjoy this podcast, episode 125. I'm pleased to welcome an amazing playwright, Alika, to the podcast. Welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. Oh my God. Hi. Thank you. So this week is a really badass week for you because you are opening uh, Poltergeist, which was the New Play Festival winner from last year. Can you just, like, let's jump in. Where did this play come from? And kind of talk me through the development process of that first seed of an idea to having a full production in the studio. Okay, well, let's jump right into it, I guess. We're going to get, like, real personal and feelsy real fast. Do it. I'm so excited. (laughs) Um, It's why I do art. Um, so Poltergeist really came from, um, this idea, um, so I was going through a really rough time when I started college. Yeah. Um, I had, like, a really good, like, beginning of freshman year. I was not on medication for the first little bit. Um, I had been diagnosed with, um, just, like, general depression and anxiety when I was in high school. And, um, turns out that was not the case. Um, I'm actually bipolar too. Um, and so I was off medication for a little bit, went back on it. And then in the meantime, um, was seeing this guy and we were going out for about like two, three months. Um, and then it was going really well. Um, we, yeah, you, you (laughs) could, you could hear it coming. Um, and then all of a sudden, like we were making plans for the summer. Like I was going to go down like road trip, like all that, like cutesy, like queer jazz. Yeah. Um, and then the night that we planned that, that was the last I ever heard from him. What? Yeah. And so, um, and so because of that, like that mixed with being on the wrong medication mixed with like, just not knowing what was going on. I ended up having, um, quite like the mental breakdown, um, that summer and then ended up having to move all the way back to Colorado. Um, took a year off and then ended up here. And so on that first year back, I was trying to do a lot of processing around what was going on because I had all these questions in my head, like, was there something that I did? Was there something that was wrong with me? Um, all of these things that essentially centered around this guilt of thinking that there was, that there had to be something wrong with me and that had to be related to my brain because that yeah. was the only thing I could yeah. pinpoint it to. Yeah. And um, it got to the point where one night I was monologuing to myself and I was like, God, like for how caught up I am in this, it's as if like this guy never left and I'm just dating his ghost. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, that's, that's a thing right there. <laughs> um, and so I started writing. And I think that the interesting thing is, is that it actually started rather than being a story, it started out more as just like this way to remove myself from the situation and process it, Sure. Um, which is something that I've come to really wholeheartedly believe in when it comes to like dealing with mental health is just being able to find that artistic outlet to just remove yourself from the situation and be like, all right, so like, what's all of the different facets and ways that yeah. I can work through this? Um, and so that was basically the basic seedling of the idea. Yeah, and how, how quickly would you say that did this sort of pour out of you? Was What was your writing process 
for that first draft? Um, the writing process for that first draft, it was really interesting because um, the idea of like where to set it and kind of how to build the characters came from two writing exercises that I did in Sarah Johnson's playwriting class, which gotcha. is where this was really born. Yeah. Um, and Sarah like looked at these two scenes was like, hey, I think that if you marry them and put them to this idea about the ghost that you have, that you really have something there. And so then I started putting those together and then it literally just kind of fell out of me. Yeah. Um, it was that like one of those really cool moments where you're having that like creative spark where it just, it doesn't even feel yeah, like you're, you're trying. you're almost just channeling. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so that was the initial process of it, and I finished it for that class and then didn't touch it for a while, um, and just kind of let it breathe. And then, how much time between having, like, a completed draft and then submitting it for the play festival? Let's see, that was, uh, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, seven months. Okay. Yeah. So it sort of sat and marinated a little yeah. bit. And then who directed your stage reading... Um, last year. So the stage reading last year was directed by Justin Johnson. Um, oh, great. Yeah, yeah, and then he was able to come back and direct like the Yay. actual workshop production Yay. this year. And so that was a really cool follow through because we were already on the same page. Right. And then when um, when it was chosen for this season, going into the... Did you sit on those, sit in on those auditions with Justin or were you sort of like... Justin, you go forth and you choose the best people. Um, it was kind of a mixture of the both. I did sit in, but um, I have always trusted Justin's casting over mine. Justin is <laughs> of, like, that's his superpower, right. um, is casting. And so um, the entire time I just kind of sat in and just was there to bounce ideas off of and, like, just little insights about the characters that might help us cast. But, like, at the end of the day, like, John, like Justin had the reins on that. Yeah. Can you talk me through your cast members for this world premiere production? Oh, God, it is a world premiere. That's interesting. You, um. you got it. <laughs> one of the things that I will say both for you and for our listeners, like, learn how to language your stuff as fancily as possible, as early as possible. I don't know if fancily is the word because that's what I feel like that's what this industry is about. Like, you have to, you have to. Not even it's not even humble brag. You have to take the humble out of it and have to be like, oh yes, I'm 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 you know helping to produce the world premiere of this <laughs> award winning production. Yeah, you want me? Anyway. Wow. I mean that that is a way to spin it. I think I'll I think I'll start doing that. Do that sounds that sounds so like oh like. But like if ego this, if slash when this goes on to be like a published dramatist or play scripts play whatever Samuel French like. Tell me about the four names that will be under the original production of it. Oh, season. God. Four, four beautiful humans. Um, so currently our cast right now is we have uh, Victor Longman playing Henry, um, who is the kind of the lead role there, um, even though it's very much an ensemble piece still. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we have Chris um, Castaneda playing um, Dylan, and I really hope I did not mess up the pronunciation of his last name. That's something that like I always look at and I just freak out and I'm like, there's so many vowels. Um, <laughs> and then we have uh, Cody Snyder playing Kit, the love interest. And then we have the wonderful Jules Murtha <laughs> playing Ash, the um, manager of the gay bar. And all of these human beings, like I have so, so much respect for them. Um, they're like, one, like I... Um, I know that the material's really hard, but I never really put myself in their shoes. 
um, to respect exactly how hard it is to do that every night. But there are a few times in which Chris was in a dance concert for the very sure. first week. Yeah. So I had to sometimes just before, like, there would be an hour, an hour and a half when he was doing dance rehearsals before he was able to come to rehearsal. And I'd have to go up and read in the scene. Yeah. And just living up there, I was like, oh, <laughs> my God, humans. <laughs> I don't know how you do this, much less, like... Right. Now we're at the point where they have to do the whole thing like every night and on Saturday they have to do it twice. Um, And just the level of sincerity and honesty and experience that all of them bring to this production because we're also be we're we're also very, very lucky to be in a room of entirely queer artists um, in putting on this new piece that's about just queer lives um, in the face of like mental illness and stuff like that. And so that's been a really powerful thing to see is that we're all on the same page um, and that there's this common understanding that none of us have to like kind of start jumping through hoops for other people just to try to like, uh, like explain and, and be, and like hold that space for someone who's like learning or just doesn't have that experience. Oh my gosh. That we're all there already on the same page. Well, There's so much I want to talk about, about what you just said. And you said it so beautifully, but that thing of, Ambassador fatigue is real. It is. <laughs> I walked out of a class last week because there was a guest speaker who used two phrases, transgendered and of a homosexual nature. And I was like hitting oh. pause and like waiting to politely, again, this word politely, right? Yeah. <clears throat> you're, it's okay that you're a, que- you know, you're a queer person, but like you have to be polite about it, right? Like, yeah. If you want to be like unapologetic about it, then like I might take issue because I'm learning and I'm really a good person. I want to be an ally. And if you jump down my throat, like how will I learn? Sorry, that like got into like a role playing <laughs> thing, like real quick. <laughs> I remember that space of like, I'm waiting for, to politely correct him on this one word. And then I was just like, homosexual nature. It's like my body reacted and like <laughs> took me out of the room before I like could verbalize it. Because it's like, what? Are we like in a 1930s propaganda film? Homosexual nature? Uh, but it, then, I mean, it opens up conversations. But then, as my dear friend Ayla Sullivan always says, they're like, it, it sounds like you're doing a lot of emotional labor for free. You want to be doing that, buddy? Yeah. And so it's like, there's so much stuff in what you just said. But I want to stop ranting in that direction and pivot to what you said about having developing a new piece that's about queer stories that has that removed expectation of explaining, of being an ambassador, and I definitely want to talk specifically about Jules's character in a tick, but this thing of one of the phrases that I learned from Roxy, um, who I just adore her, is this phrase of queer temporality. And I don't know if I have like the best definition of it, but my definition of this space is when we're in these spaces where they're all queer identified folks, uh, we have a different relationship with space and time because it just feels like time is short and endless at the same time. Would Mm. you say that you've experienced that or something like it in the rehearsal room? In the rehearsal room? Like, I've been introduced to the idea of queer temporality, again, actually through Roxy's class. (laughs) And then I I love her so much. Um, And 
like it, it has this interesting thing of there is this sense of the temporality and where we all come from because that's just a part of the queer experience at this point in time unfortunately with the way that we've been you know marginalized and all of the history and the baggage that we carry um just collectively as a group conscious from that but in the actual rehearsal room itself we've been able to create this such a safe space that it feels almost like it's not a liminal space, but it feels set aside from everything else and almost eternal in that sense. Oh my God. And so it's been a really <sighs> beautiful contrast to what you're used to, you know, like walking around on campus and knowing that you're one of the few. Right. Um, and that there can be a lot of hardship in trying to find people to collaborate with and make art with, especially when that's where the vast majority of the art that I like to try to make comes from. But being able to be in that space together is it, it almost because we're all family at that point it feels like there's nothing else outside of the room except still that the art that we're making and it almost expands it beyond this idea of temporality um oh. and that's been a really beautiful feeling to feel every night yeah so i just i just like want to wrap myself up in that sentiment like it's a leopard print snuggie oh. um it's beautiful uh it also sounds like a fantastic snuggie to wrap yourself i know up right the snuggie of queer temporality <laughs> <laughs> Uh, trademark, Roxy, uh, Rock. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Any who's all. Uh, let's talk about the development of Jules's character. Yes. This character wasn't, wasn't originally written for, uh, a non-binary assigned female at birth person, correct? It's evolved into that a bit? Um, it has evolved into that. It's actually evolved past the, um, assigned female at birth. Um, we used to have the name Nadia for that, and then I actually believe it was something that Justin mentioned that you mentioned to them, oh. actually, um, that, uh, that there's this idea of, like, well, why does that matter? And then me as still, like, a, a, a queer and gender-questioning human being, I was like, oh, my God, you're so right. How did I miss that? And so we changed the, and so then I wanted to change the name after that point to something that was just way more in the middle. Yeah. And then just turn it into a gender queer human um, just because we don't see that at all right um, and I think that one of the big reasons that came about was originally um, the role of Ash then was going by Nadia um, in the script was actually just supposed to be a, a cisgendered female human being um, and then the wonderful and amazing Beck Schmetzel um, played them um, in the first staged reading, and that kind of got my brain turning. And then over the summer when I started confronting a lot of the gender feelings that were starting to bubble up inside of myself, mm -hmm. I was like, no, this is really a voice that we need to put in here, but not in the way that it's that it's preachy or that it's like hold, holding someone by the shoulders and screaming at them, which I think that in a way, especially when it comes to that identity and the kind of backlash that that can mm -hmm. um, like kind of conjure up from people that that is something that we definitely like need the space for but with the way that the piece has turned out i wanted to have just this genderqueer individual who's just there and living their lives um because at the end of the day that's how like i got introduced to the concept is like i just started meeting people and i was like oh my god like what is this and then i started interacting with it and there was so much truth in that genuine introduction there yeah that um that's just something that i've been really wanting to show with the piece is that there 
are queer individuals out there of all different orientations, all different gender identities that just exist and experience so much else beyond like coming out and all of those other things that we see in the media. And so, especially in all of the gender politics that are coming up, I thought that would be a really powerful thing to have in there, of just have this experience that's there that's very truthful because that's how it exists in the real world. Yeah, it's not all about transition or pain or trauma Yeah. or advocacy. Like, there are plenty of, you know, trans and gender nonconforming individuals who are just really boring most of the time. And, like, I want... That's what a lot of my friends and I say. Like, we want, like, the... Bar- yeah, we want, we want the bar managers. We want, like, the boring, like, door person or yeah. whatever. And just how it's so... It's so easy. You just, as a playwright, you just make the choice to, like, change the descriptor and the casting notice, right? Like, that's not that hard to do. And we're not, unfortunately, we're not at the point collectively as an industry where we are as, you know, best practice only casting trans and gender nonconforming individuals in trans and gender nonconforming roles. Yeah. It makes me mad. We're not going to go there. That's not this podcast. But, like, yeah, and so... It may be out of your hands when someone else is producing it, but it can start with you listening today as playwrights, as theater creators, just like playing around with that description, yeah. your casting description. Like, it's not that hard to do. It really isn't, especially like under that like standpoint of like, this doesn't have to be like this big preachy thing. Like... Like, Ash is just there, and we just gender them correctly, and that's about where it ends. And, like, it's just this very real-life thing, like you were saying. Um, And and it was a very, like, remarkably easy thing to do. So, (laughs) yeah. And and casting is so in binaries right now. Yeah, you heard it here (laughs) first, folks. It was remarkably easy to do. (laughs) Challenge your darn selves. Yes, just queer stuff up. Queer stuff up. Uh... Yes, yes. So the run is sold out, as is the case with many acting studio shows. But if folks are listening to this and they really want to come, how how can they get on the wait list and maybe get in to see this uh, world premiere production? Um, so how to get on the wait list is so uh, for acting studio shows, it's almost always guaranteed that at the very least, like the first five people who are on the wait list are going to get in. Since, it, since the tickets are free, um, people tend to either forget about it or it slips their mind and there's not really a consequence for doing so because they didn't put money into it um so there's typically like at least uh, a few seats every show um and so in the past the way that i've done it is uh you just show up about 30 minutes early seven o'clock when the doors open a little bit earlier if you really like really want to cement your spot in there um and then just find the house manager put your name on the wait list um, and then around like five minutes, ten minutes before curtain, they'll start letting people in depending on how full the house is. Oh. Um, and every single time I've done it, like I always get there early. I'm one of the first five names and um, I'm able to get in. Um, so that's a really um, good thing to know. That, yeah. Like all hope is not lost even though it's sold out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll make sure to put the uh, the link on the CU Presents website in the episode description. Mm. Let's let's pretend I have a huge huge stack of colored note cards here, and uh, I'll transition into James Lipton a little bit. Um, <laughs> I had a fr- one of my friends from high school. Her like work study position at the new school 
involve like she would be the person who would deliver new note cards to James Lipton. Sometimes she was answer answer the phone and James Lipton I can't do a good James Lipton voice, but he'd be like, Yeah, I need more note cards and she'd be like, I'm on it <laughs> Anyway, just I don't think I've shared that on the podcast yet. I just love it. Like one degree of separation, two degrees of separation from James Lipton. Um when can you identify a moment where you were like I'm a writer. Like, this is something that I think I want to do for a good chunk of my time. That's hard. Um, Writing has always been this weird, on the peripheries, like, just kind of, like, glancing in and out my entire life. And every single time it's glanced in and out, it's always just like, oh, I really want to do this. And then something else takes my ADHD brain by storm, and I just, like, run off to do that. (laughs) Um but I think that the real, like, come to Jesus moment, um, it's an interesting phrase. Anyway, ah! <laughs> um, uh, especially being raised Christian. Anyway, that's a whole different <laughs> rabbit trail I'm going to run back away from. Um, I think that the big moment for me was, it was sometime around uh, my first year at CU Boulder. Um, I made the wonderful impulse decision to um, take an intro to creative writing class over the summer. Because I was going to try to do some summer classes to kind of catch up on some credits that didn't transfer over from my other school. And um, I found this one and I was like, you know what? It's summer. I deserve to have like one fun class. I'm going to try this because I've never taken a creative writing class, but I've like written a ton of stuff. Um, And so I did. And then all of a sudden I was like, whoa, I forgot how much that I liked this and how cool it would be to study it in an academic sense. And so I started trying to push that and theater side by side, and I really wasn't sure. Um, And then I took playwriting. Um, And that's when it really kind of clicked for me, because I was never sure what genre I wanted to write in, as just like a quote-unquote like normal, like creative writer, run-of-the-mill, whatever that means. Um, And I was trying to choose between like, oh, like I really like poetry, I really like fiction, I really like stories. And then playwriting just was sitting over here and was like, hey, you also like theater, and guess what merges all three of those? (laughs) Um, And so then I really fell in love with playwriting. Um, And then it kind of like, I I took some time off, went back to fiction writing, and then just doing the entire process of New Play Festival and being able to see the work, or at least hear it semi on its feet, um, was the moment where I was like, oh, wow, like, this could be something that, like, this could be my way to tell stories. Um, I've always been a very visual person, um, and people have always been like, well, you're, like, fiction reads really weird. It's almost cinematic. And I'm like, it's not supposed to be. It's fiction. And then I realized, I was like, maybe there's a reason for that. Right. Um, Because I've always just wanted to tell stories. I I love stories. I love the way that stories can make people think. And I think it was a combination between all of that that then over the course of like a year and even if you really want to get into the nitty-gritty of that since like second grade maybe even beforehand that just culminated into that moment um at new play festival last year where i walked away and i was like this is something that i i need to do and i won't ever forgive myself if i don't go for it right so can you talk a little bit about your writing process i always like to pick writers brains and be like, is it very intuitive? Do you set aside a certain amount of time? Or is it just like when inspiration strikes, Ooh. being ready to receive and sort of channel it? Yeah, I think it depends on the medium. Um, when I was writing fiction, and granted, I, I still like writing fiction. It's still something that I dabble in. Um, that is very much like every day, 2,000 words. Like you're going to lose the voice that you're building. You're going to lose 
like the just the the thematic train of thought that your narrative voice is going on unless you do that um that was something that i was doing a lot um over the summers is i was just be like nope like two thousand words a day just got to do it um poetry is very much like i can't just like be like go write a poem and then like i i have to wait for it to really kind of hit me um playwriting is somewhere in the middle of where i try to write or at least get out ideas or at least like get some kind of planning idea down on paper as often as I can but dialogue is so hard that like really until I start just like it it's almost weird especially from like a mental health standpoint of like that like that voice just starts going and then I'm like oh okay and then I'll like move earth wind and fire to yeah. find my computer and sit down yeah. um and so for playwriting it's somewhere in the middle but for the other ones it's on the other two sides of the spectrum yeah for sure what's what's coming up next for you like what are you working on now past poltergeist oh um a lot of things yeah. um so i have two pieces in the new play festival coming up a 10 minute and a one act um the 10 minutes just kind of a fun thing that I'm doing to try to experiment in getting more political rather than um, staying in the mental health track, which I think is still a really important conversation to have. But after writing Poltergeist, I was like, I need a break. Sure, um, yeah. And then the one act, I'm hopefully um, going to, at some point in my life, turn into a 90-minute one act. Um, and that's just supposed to be a kind of an existential look at just the state of the world right now. Um, because I feel, I, I, I think that I'm not the only one where I'm looking around and I, I don't know what to do. I feel very frozen and doomed. Um, yeah. and so it's kind of a digestion of that, but as if it were a stoner comedy. Cute. <laughs> um, cause I always need humor as a coping mechanism. Sure. Yeah. And then beyond that, I'm also working on drafting a new piece, uh, for Kevin's class, which I hope to turn into something for grad applications. And um, right now I'm juggling between two pieces, one about sexual assault and the other about um, queer assimilation into heteronormativity. Um, and Ooh. yeah, I really want to get into that second one. Like yeah. there's a lot of feelings there. Um, and I think that the exciting thing of, and, the, and the prospect about the queer assimilation piece is that I want to explore it through putting horror on stage um, and do it through a horror lens because it's something that um, I think depending on your background and depending on the ones you look at is actually a very terrifying thing. Um, and then to other people, it's not, and I can respect that. Um, but for me, there's just some ramifications and just, just hints of colonialism that's still there sure. that, um, just kind of sets my teeth on edge. And I would like to explore what it looks like to really, really disturb someone with that idea. Oh, I love it so much. I can't wait to read that. Please, oh. please send it to me when like there's something to be sent. Okay. I, that it just really draws me in. That thing of yeah. Uh, I get it. I think like that's being radically like radically in opposition to this idea of being the polite queer is like how can, cool. Like I can be the polite queer, but also I can scare the. Queer crap out of you with yeah. your work and I think we have to keep coming at it from both ways Yeah, in a way. It's know? almost like no future Lee Edelman-esque which is kind of yeah. something that we were just talking about in Roxy's class yesterday. I'm still chewing through it. Sure. There's a lot there but um, when we were going through it I was like oh wow this actually fits into the things that I've been thinking about with writing a lot. So. Yeah. 
I'm not sure if that's a bad thing to just touch on that like massive subject of just right away. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we only have so much. Time. Yeah, we can't that's go a whole into other that panel discussion. Shit. Oh my gosh, that'd be so interesting. Uh, so, what advice, like, if there are folks listening who are like, well, I think maybe I'm a playwright, or like, I, I would like to explore, but maybe they don't have the bandwidth to take a whole mm. darn playwriting class. What what advice would you give to emerging playwrights? Oh, this is something that's... I might go for a while on this. Please, um, yeah. First off, just don't stop writing. Whatever you do in whatever medium, anything that you can get onto paper is going to help you in the long run. I mean, I was writing manuscripts for novels long before I was um, playwriting. And I think that's actually where I just learned to digest things that I was seeing on like um, like film and television and things that I was reading and turning that into a story because I was just like, just for the hell of it, I was just doing it. Um, and so really the never stop writing thing, I think if anything is the biggest thing, I truly have begun to believe that there's really no such thing as someone who can't write or who can't become a writer. That the, that talent, like, that can help. Um, there's some people who just kind of have that knack for it, and that's what we call talent. And I'm, I think that maybe we should reframe those words because there's a lot of loaded weight to them. Um, but for the most part, what I see is that just what separates a good writer from a bad writer isn't anything but the time that they've spent doing it. Um, that as long as you do it long enough that you will get to a place where people will be like, hey, that's a really good story, just because you do it over and over and over and over again. Um, the other thing would be, especially for playwriting, just find people, bribe them, make them food, I don't know, and just find voices to read your stuff. That, um, that playwriting is one of the other things that I like because it is both weirdly like you're by yourself in your room writing and it's a little masturbatory and then also but you need a community in order to foster it and so it to me it is that perfect middle ground of like doing something by yourself but then needing other people to help you um and i think that that's really beautiful because that's this kind of sense of community that we don't see a lot i feel like it's either like all individual or all community and if you're all individual then you're like egotistical and it's weird um but it's this healthy bridge between the two that teaches you to take care of yourself and listen to yourself but also listen and value the voices around you um and then my other weird one and i actually this is kind of a like a fun anti-capitalist rant even though youtube is selling out with their ads <laughs> um is i would say youtube um, there are so many wonderful YouTube channels out there that cover storytelling techniques, things like character, things like dialogue, um, antagonists, how to write a good antagonist, how to do a plot twist, how to do a beginning and an ending. Um, it, there's so many good resources out there and so many smart brains who are just picking apart things like movies that you've seen, TV shows that you've seen, stuff that you're familiar with. And what they're able to do in these video essays is they pick them apart and they take out all of these different elements and they put them in front of you. And then you're like, oh my God, I didn't know that I knew that, but like now it's just cemented right. and now I can go run away and use that. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's been actually one of my biggest teachers aside from doing classes and um, doing workshops and doing um, intensives and things like that, which there is so much, so much value in all of that. 
Um, finding a community is another really good thing, and I'll get into that later. But if you are bored and you're just looking for a good way, I, I like it because it's both procrastination, killing time, relaxing, and learning ah. all rolled into one. Yeah. And it's like just the best use of time, in my opinion, because like it, I can lose myself for hours on YouTube rabbit trails of just storytelling videos. And it's fun. It's cool because you get to look at stuff that you love. And it just cements all of these things that nobody ever really goes over. Um, and then also, like, any kind of workshop, any kind of class that you can, if you have the privilege to have access to that, like, jump on that. Thank you for naming um, that. Because privilege, to, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Because there is a, if I can just interject for a second. Oh, like go there was for a it. study that went out. Recently, that was talking about analyzing not only the um, ethnic, racial, and LGBTQ identifiers behind, you know, the plays that were produced nationally, but then also mm -hmm. in New York, and it's still so much cis white dudes, yeah, who are the majority of not only the playwrights but the majority of gatekeepers, yes, in terms of saying what is good, what do we see, and when we really unpack that like there's so many intersections of you know patriarchy and colonialism and all the things but look carefully at the theaters that you patronize and see mm -hmm. who are they producing yeah and if it's a bunch of white cis dudes you have advocacy as an audience as a paying audience member yeah to say I want to see myself represented on your stage. And then also, I don't know, it's that thing of access. The access is really top of mind for me because, yeah, yeah, you probably don't know how to... You, why would you know how to format a script correctly mm -hmm. if you can't even get your foot in the door of a playwriting class? Exactly. And it's just so... I don't have an answer to any of this right now, but I think it's our responsibility as allies... And, and, and marginalized voices and champions of marginalized voices to really at least interrogate the makeup of who has access to writing classes. Yeah, and, and I, like, oh, God, like, I could get into this. This yeah. is, yeah. like, something yeah. that is just, for me, like, a massive can of worms that I love diving into. <laughs> um, like, just give me all that nitty-gritty. I Like, I hate, like... I love college. It's taught me a lot. I also hate it because it is so privileged and institutionalized yeah. Um, yeah. in that. And so I think that's why I wanted to touch on, like, as much as I would think, like, my mentors, my professors, like, all of that, I wanted to touch on that last because, like, there's so few up-and-coming voices that get access to playwriting classes, like you said, or even playwriting intensives. Right. Um, there's some really good ones out there. I had the blessing to be able to do a writing intensive at Curious New Theater over the summer. Yes, and shout out to Curious. Shout out to Curious. They do amazing work. Like, if you're in the Denver metro area, like, check them out. Please. Um, but they're a very accommodating group, for especially for Curious New Voices, is that there was a lot of help there to um, cover the costs. They do offer scholarships, and they're very... Um, good about that. Yeah, can we just shout out to Dee Covington, yes. the education director, because she's given me amazing opportunities to direct through, it was through the National Collective reading mm. that then turned into a FezCon presentation. Wow. And I just love how she, like, she saw my MFA thesis, which was co-written with Ayla, saw that I directed that, and there wasn't this 
gatekeeping thing of, well, you need to apprentice or you need to like prove yourself. It was, mm. I saw your work. You have important stuff to say. Mm-hmm. Let me hire you, pay you, and put your work on my stage. Yeah. And it's just, it's super inspiring. I love her so much. And so I just wanted to not only name Curious, but Dee specifically. Yes. Yeah. And Dee is also just a wonderful playwriting teacher. Like, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> uh, like, What are some of your favorite snippets for from uh, her playwriting class? Oh my God. Okay, I could go into this for, again, there's so much stuff. I just like talking. Um, That's what podcasts are all about, <laughs> um, So Dee, I think, was the first person who really taught me how to rewrite. Yeah. That's not something that gets covered a lot. Yeah. Um, a lot of writing classes are like, all right, get the idea down. And then they're just like, all right, your final project's the first draft. Run away. Um, and then you're just left with this thing that you're like, well, how do I help this? How do I edit this? How do I grow this? Um, whereas D was the first one who was like, no, we're going to take you through the beginning of chasing an idea, chasing characters, and all the important stuff that comes along with that. And I learned so many new techniques to get words in a draft out. But then she turned around and she was like, all right, now let's dive into how you change this. Um, And that's, I walked away from that and I, it was actually so lucky. Um, I was so unbelievably stuck on the poltergeist free edits um, over the summer. And then I took that um, playwriting intensive and I sat back down afterwards and I was like, I know what to do. Yeah. Like, um, it changed the piece drastically and so much for the better. Um, it's such a stronger piece on its feet now. And that's something that would not have happened were it not for Dee Covington. Um, and then she also is just the most lovingly encouraging, but also is not afraid to tell you how it is, which I think is something that's a really hard line to walk um, with being a, especially like a creative mentor because it's like you want to encourage someone you also want to push them on that path of growth and she is the perfect like like middle ground mother figure of like no you're doing really good but like that is a problem and let's debate it let's get in a little bit of a fight defend your point I'll defend mine and maybe you'll listen to me maybe you won't but like we need to make this known yeah and that's something that's really powerful to have as a growing artist because you have to get used to that like, if you're going to do art, you have to get used to people who are going to tell you how it is. Sometimes people are not going to be anywhere near as, like, graceful about it as D is. Yeah. Um, because, like, that's a real blessing to get to start um, a thing. And, and I'm so glad that she does um, education with, like, middle and high school students because, like, that's where this starts. And she is such a good voice and representative for that. Um, like I've never gotten to see her teach that, but I have like, just in the way that she ran the, vo- uh, the room at Curious New Voices, like I have zero doubt. Um, so that I'll cut my rant short cause I know we don't have much more time, but that just, if you have the opportunity to ever like be like mentored in any way, shape or form by D, like go for it. I, I, I second and yes. And the crap out of that statement. We love you D. Um, yeah, just to sort of. As we sort of wind down our time together, uh, what I'd love to ask playwrights, and I know this is like a really hard question, but um, can we maybe close out with one or two of your favorite lines from Poltergeist? Oh, this is okay. Oh, oh no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me think on that. Um, 
One of my one of my all time. It, it's not a line per se. It, it's a it's an exchange. Um, and Justin actually pointed it out to me. It wasn't like I put it in. And I was like, oh, this is really powerful because this describes like what's going on. And then I didn't realize it was the entire play in a nutshell. And then Justin was like, that's the entire play in a nutshell. And I was like, oh my god, you're right. And so now it's become one of my favorite exchanges. But um, it's when uh, Henry is sitting at the foot of his bed um, next to the ghost of his ex-boyfriend, Dill, that he can't quite get over. Um, and he's trying to explain why he doesn't need another person in his life to Dill. And so Henry says, like, well, remember, I have you. I love you. And then Dill replies with loved. And then Henry is like, no, love. And it's that... You're making me cry oh. right here. <laughs> well, you get to come to Poltergeist I and do. cry even more. Um, and I, I really like the way that that exchange wraps it up is because it's this struggle to look at something and acknowledge that you're holding on to it for a little too long, but you're not able to fully do so because Dill is an extension of Henry. So on that means that on one hand, Henry knows that this is a past tense loved, that Dill's not there anymore, but he can't let go. And so for him, it's still in the present tense. Um, and that's something that I think is really powerful. Um, and then there's just, there's a lot of other just like really like stupid, funny lines that I love. Um, I think um, just Ash takes a lot of them. Like, just Ash's <laughs> character in general, I'm going to write an Ash spinoff. I'm in love with them. Oh, my gosh, please. Um, <laughs> there's just, like, I'm just like, no, there's so many stories around this human that, like, happen either years before or years after. But, like, I want to see it. Um, and so, really, like, if you come see it, just anything by Ash is probably some of my favorite exchanges. Um, and then I think one of my other favorites, um, and especially that kind of wraps up the show... Um, additionally in a nutshell, and it's this conversation I'm trying to start between the communication between more neurotypical people and people who have mental illness yeah. and the fact that that's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. But I also don't think we should write it off. I've um, had friends who have been on both sides of the spectrum who are just like, it's so impossible to communicate with them. Let's just keep to ourselves kind of neurotypical people. I can be friends with you, but I'm not going to date you. I'm not going to get that involved. It's right. just too much. Right. And then other people who are more like, well, how do we avoid mentorship fatigue and how do we continue pushing this um and so that's something that i really wanted to explore because i'm i'm on the side of there needs to be a way because like there, there shouldn't be the separation of people right. i'm not for that in any way shape or form and so i think one of my favorite lines on kit's part who is supposed to represent the more neurotypical people um is he's pleading with henry and trying to at least get him to open up. I won't give much more away because it, it can give away the show um, in that moment. But he says, um, but I at least know what, I, I at least need to know what it is so I can do my best to be there for you. Um, and I think that that wraps up my desires for the neurotypical community and my desires for the mental health community is that there doesn't have to be this full immediate understanding, but that there should at least be oh openness and transparency to help like rip down that stigma so then slowly and eventually we can start talking about it and and see how we can be there for each other and that there's no one who can fix the other one but that there is a way that we can learn to hold each other up because i think it goes both ways 
Oh, that's a beautiful so. sentiment to end our time together oh. on. Alika, thank you so much for coming and being a guest. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Yeah, and uh, congratulations on your world premiere. Play. Thank I can't you. Wait to see it. And folks, uh, it's always worth it. Speaking from a box office and a house management perspective, it's always worth it if it's sold out to show up uh, show up early and, and advocate and try to get your way in to see a beautiful story like this one. It would mean the world to me. So <laughs> Yeah, so have a great run and thank you again so much. Well, thank you so much for having me.